Are you wearing an Ellen Green t-shirt right I now? I sure am. Oh my god. I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> just noticed that. I came dressed properly. <laughs> you did. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to the Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a writer for Playbill. It's Logan Colwell Block, everybody. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing just fine here on this chilly. Well, I said it was chilly. Yeah. You, you disagree. Morning. And uh, we are here to talk about Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors. Shop of Horrors. The original Little Shop of Horrors. We've done the revival, and now we're here to talk about the original. Yeah, I need to bring it back to, 19, to, to the, to the yeah. set, yeah, mm-hmm. to the beginning, to where it all started. How did Little Shop come into your life? Well, I grew up in Texas, as I was telling you earlier, and so most of my musical experience was either tours or watching videos at home from Blockbuster. And I actually remember, like, I would work my way through the musicals section and I remember seeing the cover of Little Shop of Horrors, the movie, and thinking that it was in the wrong section. And I said something about it to my dad and he was like, no, no, that's a musical and you should get it because it's it's good. And then I rented it and I was kind of immediately obsessed with it. One, because I liked it and two, because I couldn't fathom how they would do that on stage. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, the movie does feel that way. It feels yeah. it feels like a movie. I mean, in like like not like a musical, like well, it's filmed version of a stage show. I mean, that puppet is crazy. I don't know if you know, but oh, they yeah. had to film everything half time so that they can get all the like lip Little motions. articulations. Yeah, it's nuts. Mm-hmm. But um, also at that time in my life, I had um, parents who did not understand why one would want more than one recording of the same show. Oh. So I had to be very judicious about which album I would buy. So since I'd seen the movie. I thought, well, then I'll buy the stage album Mm -hmm. because it has material that's not in the movie and it's a different version and blah, blah, blah. And so that's the album that I've always known the best and I loved and played Mm -hmm. the crap out of when I was little. Well, it was just the soundtrack of the... When at that point, it would have been either just the movie soundtrack or the soundtrack or the album, Because the revival was until 2004. I don't think there are any other... Oh, there's many, like... Are there many... There's many foreign language ones. There's ones (laughs) that you can get from England that are really bad. Oh, but um, yeah, the major English ones are. Well, it's a tricky show, and we'll get into that in a minute, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Um, but I think we did this when, yeah, when Elliot was here. This is funny, Elliot Johnson, who did the 2004 Broadway production of Little Shop. He got the he encountered the show the same way. He he encountered it through the movie, which I think is pretty. Also, I think I, the way I encountered it. Have you ever seen the original movie, the 1961? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. How long is it? 70 minute. I mean, it's a really short. It's very. Short. It was made in a day, kind of. Uh, uh, infamously, Roger Corman film. It's pretty good, I think. It's for what it is. I mean, it's it's good for yeah. what it is. I I always say like if you think you're getting anything that's related to Little Shop of Horrors the musical, you're not really. They're very very different yes. animals. <laughs> yes, they are. Well, because and actually in researching for this because we we're talking about the original, uh, I encountered a lot of ha- what Howard Ashman was talking about when he was writing this was his big influence was Greece. Yeah. As using that style of music to inform. He wanted to do kind of an inverted Grease. And it is funny. If you take the original Little Shop movie and I think the movie version of Grease and you slam them together, you kind of get this show. It's kind of a perfect like marriage of those two 
wildly different ideas. Yeah, I mean, like, historically, the reason I like Little Shop so much is I think it stands on the shoulders a little bit of, like, a Grease and a Rocky Horror a little bit. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit of Dames at Sea. But for the most part, it kind of invented its own little thing that became a whole genre Mm -hmm. that a bajillion other shows after it copy and try to fake basically right fake that's mean to to (laughs) recreate (laughs) so for those who don't know and because it's been a little while since we talked about it could you summarize the plot of little shop of horrors sure little shop of horrors is based on a roger corman film and it is about a nerdy middle-aged boy named seymour krellborn who works for a horrible florist on skid row He loves weird plants, and he finds a really weird plant after a total eclipse of the sun, a sudden and total eclipse of the sun, which turns out to be a talking, singing, man-eating plant who takes over the world. There you go. After getting Seymour to feed him human flesh. Yes. Lots of of different people. Mm -hmm. And then then the thing that I, I kind of forgot about was that, at least in the original Off-Broadway, I think every time someone was eaten, their face would appear on a flower, or there's a segment they do of at the, the end? end? That's what they do at the end. They do at okay. the end, and it's actually more like the um, the original production was more like the Corman movie. I don't know if you remember, but at the end of the Corman movie is that it has all these blooms that finally bloom, and they have the face of the Oh, of God, the that's right. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, you should look it up if you it's haven't great. seen it's it. It's on YouTube. The whole thing's on YouTube, so check it out. Yeah. The original. And like I say, it's like 72 minutes long. It's yeah. not a long movie. Yeah. But now, generally, it's done where it's like a, a hood that the actors put over themselves in the musical version, mm-hmm. meaning for the end to sing the thing. But in the original Off-Broadway production, it was actually these latex faces that they would stand behind mm-hmm. and move the mouth. And I kind of prefer it that way. It looks much more like a can't-be horror film. Well, then that's the thing of it. Like I think this is a deceptively tricky show yeah it is because i think on this it it feels very straightforward it feels very it's a like you say it's a doo-wop musical and it's about the plot is actually very simple weird as it is it's very easy to follow but Mm -hmm. the tone of it is very very tricky it's tricky but it's also that really specifically queer campy thing where it's like everything is crazy but also, he's kind of set up this world in which, in this crazy world, these are real characters. Yeah. And they say funny things, but also you you like care for them. Mm-hmm. To me, the, the brilliance is always somewhere that's green, which, until the third verse, is all meant to be a joke. It's, it's all comedic lyrics. And you don't really ever hear it get laughs. Yeah. Because she's so earnest and so sweet, you just it's want sad. it for her. He rakes it. It is. I, I mean, so I heard. I first heard somewhere this green confession on Mandy Patinkin's album Experiment. I honestly did not even know that he had sung that song. You that okay? Album. So and if I'm you are, have to immediately find out. She rakes and trims the grass. I love to mow and weed. She cooks like Betty Crocker, and she looks like Donna Reed. 
There's plastic on the furniture To keep it neat and clean Right, Ma? In the pine salt-scented air Somewhere that's green Ma- Mandy fans uh, will know that Experiment is, I think it was his fourth album, and he tried to create this, he talked about it, I remember seeing an interview with him at the time, talking about how like, if you put all these songs together, there's no gaps between them, they all flow into each other, It's kind of, it creates this love story, and I thought, oh neat, like a concept Broadway album, that's an interesting idea, it is not that at all, it's really nice, and it's a Mandy Patinkin album, but on it is like, he sings I Dreamed a Dream, on that somewhere that's green i mean it's the, the track list of experiment he also sings taxi by harry chapin which mm-hmm. is how i first heard that song which is an amazing song uh but yeah it's a so that was the first time i heard somewhere that's green and if you can imagine sort of listening to somewhere that's green sung very earnestly by mandy patinkin and then like listening to the lyrics going what the hell is this song about it's so Bananas song. Yeah, it's a great to, album. I mean, it has multitudes of Amy's on it. It's got Someone Is Waiting, Road You Didn't Take. I mean, it's just, and it's an amazing, amazing album. But yeah, so that that was. He, he's a bold performer. He makes choices. Lightly. He makes choices, and we respect that. At least mm-hmm. I do. I love. Yeah, you're you're not gonna be you're not gonna be bored. That's all you can nope. be guaranteed Absolutely by a Mandy not. performance. The yeah. So in any event, I I but listening to it again, uh, to talk to you about it today. I've had the experience I've had, I think, so many times listening to to uh, Ellen Green sing somewhere that's green. It's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous song. It's really one of, I have to say, it's one of the great performances. Mm-hmm. That song, but actually the whole thing. New York snob alert. Sure. She returned to that role two summers ago. Yeah. And it was really one of the greatest things I've ever seen. It, it was nuts because... I'm so used to when people come back to roles after that long, it's like it's become a parody of itself. Yeah. I don't know what she did, but it was like getting into a time machine. Mm-hmm. And it was 1982 again, and it was everything that made it. It is, I mean, it, it's so, it's such a wonderful marriage of performer and song. I mean, it is that thing of like that you see very, very rarely, but when it happens, it's magic. And then the other ones that occur to me are like, Len Caru singing Epiphany or uh, Michael Cerverus doing Edges of the World. Like it is just, it's a great song and other people will do it and it'll be good. But that is like, that's a, a beautiful marriage of performer and song. I was struck listening to this. I usually listen to the album that we're going to talk about two or three times. I listen to this one like five times because it's so short. It's really short. It's a it's, really short recording. It's short. I mean, it's a short show. It's like, a short, yeah. It's under two hours with the intermission. Yeah. But it's also a really tight recording, which I think was... Great, because it mimics the show is really tight. Yeah, and when you take the applause out, I think they kind of found a way to adapt that, which actually is another reason that I wanted to talk about this album. I feel like little the Off Broadway album of Little Shop is a good album. Like we mm-hmm. talk so much about cast albums as like this is a representation of the show or whatever. And this is probably an unpopular opinion that I have. I actually prefer when they are conceived as an album it's a different medium than sitting and watching something so there are people that would listen to this off-broadway album and be upset that some of the endings of songs are trimmed and the order of the songs is different than it is in the show and so on and so forth but i listened to it and i'm like it sound it translated that whole 60s zeitgeist that the show lives in 
into the album version of that. Well, you yeah, you will get no argument from me, as I'm sure since you've listened to the show, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I, I I do 100% agree that an album is a different monster. And there's a couple different ways you can approach it. You can approach an album... I mean, there's the sort of two schools of thought, I think, or the sort of the Goddard-Lieberson school, of the of which this certainly adheres to, of the sort right. of no dialogue or minimum dialogue, uh, and, you know, fast, sh- the song, it's just the songs, and the songs are sort of recrafted to become album tracks. Mm-hmm. And then you have the more, I, I kind of call it the Thomas Z. Shepard school, even though it's it's not it's not entirely accurate, but like... Sweeney Todd is the album I always think of, which is not, or Merrily, which is not that. That is a crafted uh, representation of the show. Still great albums, still a great performance because they suit the shows they're representing. That's what I was going to say. The show dictates, it should dictate what kind of an album it makes. You're not going to make a Sweeney Todd that's an album in the way that Little Shop is. Right. Whereas, you know, the Little Shop album was produced by Phil Ramone. Like, they literally, they knew exactly Mm -hmm. what they were doing. And it sounds exactly like you want it to sound right which is not what it would have sounded like in the orpheum theater off broadway right exactly right it it, it, it would it's its own it's completely its own thing yes phil ramon he of billy joel's producer until he mm-hmm. got in he's actually i didn't realize did cast albums originally and then moved into rock and roll and he, then moved back into cast albums i also didn't know until actually when i was preparing for this he's um credited with recording the marilyn monroe happy birthday yeah. mr president mm-hmm. <laughs> yep he was alive. So there's uh, a nice little trivia yeah, factoid. There you go. Yeah, he's a, I mean, he's a, yeah, he's a storied producer of having, he, he started, I mean, it's his first, I think he worked on um, the Pippin cast album for Motown with Stephen Schwartz. And then like he did Promises, Promises and won a Grammy for that. Um, and then won a lot of Grammys for Billy Joel stuff and other things. And then came back around, like I say, and did, I mean, he did, um, I think he did Passion. The original Broadway recording of Passion, okay. uh, which is yes, he did, <laughs> and he won a Grammy for that, which is a great album. But I'm saying he's a very versatile producer, obviously, and right. that is another album that is tightly. I mean, it's a tight mm-hmm. show with a tight, tight album. Right. Uh, so he is definitely of the older school album producers, I think, where it's a produced album, which is definitely not the way it's done today. Now, no, which is so sad. And I've, I'm on record here, and I'll say it again. I, I think the Dear Evan Hansen cast album is terrible. And just for that, from a producing standpoint, purely from a producing standpoint, uh, I, I, it, it feels it feels like a pop album to me in the way it's mixed. And that drives me absolutely up a wall. Yeah. Because I've I, seen the show and it's not, you know. I just get so, uh, very, as you can tell, nerdy specific person. And like when it comes to the, the Little Shop recordings, the revival and the Off-Broadway, I always think about how the Off-Broadway one is, Off-Broadway one is so tight in terms of the sound. Mm-hmm. Like the drums are very crisp and tight, which reminds me of that show. It's, it's this fast paced thing. Revival recording sounds more like you hear it in a theater, yeah. which is fine, but that's not what I want to listen to in headphones right. listening to an album. Yeah, it's a totally different... And it's also... It is the advantage of crafting it, though, as an album. I mean, it's the fact that this is 1982. Right. You went out and bought the record. You listened to the record. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there weren't singles that anyone was playing with at this point. It was just you listened to the record. So that is obviously not the way music is consumed now. It is even even albums are consumed... Usually song by on, song. Song yeah. by song, usually on shuffle. So it's produced a lot more song to song to song. And we're also seeing a resurgence, it seems to me, of like 
there was a while there in the 90s where dialogue tracks would be completely isolated. They'd be their own track. I remember, I still remember showing my CD of The Secret Garden. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of. And he was like, that CD has five billion tracks. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Yeah, and they're labeled scene, (laughs) Mistlethwaite Manor, like, you know, song. And they would blend, like if you played it, they would bleed into each other, but you could skip. You know, which is why Lily, Lily's why, eyes has that super awkward beginning. If you click to the beginning of the CD, it starts with uh, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> before Robert Westenberg comes in. It's also why I can never just put my phone or iPod or whatever on shuffle because I inevitably will have like a string of nine dialogue moments. Uh-huh. Yeah. Here's the like uh, school book depository scene from Assassins. Enjoy on your workout. No. <laughs> Not doing it. <laughs> well, see, then you 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 didn't take it to the extreme. I took it to, which is uh, I I then meticulously went through and labeled the genre of all those differently, so that they don't. Then I have playlists built around specific genres. That's smart. It it, it took a while. I mean, I will I will tell <laughs> I will you. Say. You my iTunes is like a Rain Man level organized. <laughs> I'll show you mine when we're done recording. Well, well, saying, when I when I applied for my job at Playbill, which was doing the vault, like the mm-hmm. librarian, basically, right? I've talked about my iTunes library because I'm like, I, Trust I, I know how to do this. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but there is a joy to that. I mean, I, I find it, and it's like you say, you and I have talked over email and over Twitter about recordings and stuff, and you know where all your recordings are. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you had to find a song, you could find it. And oh. I, I find great joy. I'm the same way. If you ask me to find a song, I could find a song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, a, I, I mean, just from a basic, I just need to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. This album is is an album and a crafted album. And it was a joy to listen to. I mean, it's a show I've heard a hundred times. I think it's my wife's favorite musical. She played in the pit in it in high school and uh, always played piano. And there you go. Just absolutely loved it. It's a great show to play. You know what I had never thought about until I was listening to it again for this was I knew that tracks were out of order. And mm-hmm. I guess in my mind, I'd always done it because they, they weren't going to record Callback in the Morning. And so they make right. post-renovation kind of fill that space. Mm-hmm. But... I had never thought about, they also put Dentist before somewhere that's yes. green, yeah. which is so smart because the semi-sadist joke wouldn't work on right. an album if you hadn't if you didn't know dentist. who the sadist was. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's very true. And it feels, I mean, again, that's the cra- That's the thought of it. That's the craft of being like, they're going to listen to this album. I do get touchy about stuff like that. I have to say, like, I don't know how I feel. I agree. Very smart album making decision. When you start to mess with the order of songs, that's when I start to get a little like, I want to listen to, because I want to listen to it in the order of the songs. Like, I, it's just how I, it's that weird, like, that's how I want to do it. And like when I got those, um, you get those like original, uh, rema- obviously digitally remastered, those old Rodgers and Hammerstein, like 78s that they then, those were listed wherever they could fit songs. Like those are in no particular order because it's, it's, it's like 878s with two sides. We're putting songs wherever they go. So if you, when you get it, it's stacked. It's all kinds of <laughs> out of order. And then you have to, I, I, you don't have to, I go back through and kind of re, re-jigger it to make it in, in show well, order. It's funny too, those albums, because like you talk about changing things for albums. Those are classic theater albums that were 100% not even really intended to be a record of the show. Right. As it wasn't, like it was a record of those songs. Right. So they'd put them in any order to make them fit, but they'd also, but the, the well, telling was, the story of the show never, I don't think, really necessarily entered into the decision. When it was there. the popular music of the day, right. also. I mean, you know, up through the early 60s, Broadway cast albums were the popular music of the day. And, and so to that end, that's what you... Yeah, that's what you were thinking about. It was pop. It was pop music sensibilities. I'm not 100 percent sure when this 
record of the show idea came in to being it, it it sort of feels like the first album that feels that way to me conceptually is merrily we roll along where thomas e shepherd i think decided this show may never be done again right so i'm gonna put a lot of diet like more than average amount of dialogue all the little reprises all the little moments i'm gonna fill this lp to the brim with material because this show may never get done again uh Obviously, there were other albums made before that of shows that didn't run for very long. Anyone can whistle, but then also like Seventy Girl Seventy and Floor of the Red Menace. Like these sure. are shows that were not hits, but but have cast albums to go with them. Uh, so yeah, I, I wonder when that I'm... became sort of the popular that where it swung to that side of the idea. I certainly idea. think the eighties and nineties, late eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. certainly when I was starting to find new albums in my childhood, they were mostly all like that. Mm-hmm. I wonder so, how much yeah. the Les Mis Phantom Phenomenon had to do with that. See, but the, I, I would put those shows more in the in the Sweeney Todd category where um, I think they're recorded more like operas. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. Yeah. Well, they're very, yes, obviously, mm-hmm. especially with Phantom. But yeah. I, I also mean that in the sense of like they're big two disc albums mm-hmm. with a lot of material in them and they sold really well. And I sort of, there was a point I remember buying cast albums being like, this doesn't need to be two discs i remember there was i don't remember what it was but there was something i bought and i was just like this this could have if you cut a bunch of this out this could have easily fit on one disc essential one for me is the um john doyle sweeney todd which is i literally think maybe like 10 minutes more than (laughs) i think it's like 96 minutes of material and it's on two discs and i'm like you really need both of them right no and still cut city on fire (laughs) but did you see that Mm -hmm. okay It, it has its uh, it it didn't age as well as I I, I yeah. liked it at the time because it was it was intense and scary I guess mm. but yeah I remember liking it but then I saw it on tour I didn't live in New York then mm. and I liked it less on tour hmm. other than Judy Kay was Mrs Lovett who was oh well that really be, one of no, the best that's worth the Mrs. price Lovett's of admission I've ever seen. yeah no I have, I'm, I think I've tweeted out I have a Judy Kay playlist on my iTunes library that's a good playlist it's, she's gosh she's, <laughs> she's really really good her and the Queen Judy Kuhn long mm-hmm. may she reign bunch of Judys well and speaking of fan this is total sure whatever nonsense rock and roll why is there not a Broadway recording of Judy Kay and Farron <laughs> I would kill to hear her prima well, donna, and I don't even like that show very much. That's the when Kenny Neal was here talking about uh, Starlight Express, I, I brought this up. This weird quirk of Andrew Lloyd Webber shows that the cast. See, this is funny. This is the third way of thinking about cast albums because we have albums as themselves as a piece of art. You have uh, record of the show. There's the third way of thinking about it is this way that was sort of shepherded by Doug Johnson at Capitol Records, who, I mean, did Music Man, uh, but also, among people like us, is more famous for having done the original Follies Broadway cast album, which is sort of the greatest abomination in the history of musical theater. Yeah. And it is this cast album as commodity, is as something we sell in the lobby after you've seen the show. And Andrew Lloyd Webber... Seems, which is so funny to me, having started creating albums. I mean, Superstar and Evita. He seems to view cast albums that way as an extension merely of the product of the show itself. And so, I mean, famously to me, doesn't re record, doesn't have Broadway and London versions of most of his shows. And when he does. Except for Cats, strangely. Yeah, which is very odd to yeah. me. The Cats has a. Because the, the Cats is the only one that has two full double disc albums, mm-hmm. I believe. Even going back to Superstar, you have the rock opera, 
And then when he brought it to New York, they did a Highlights album. Evita has a studio album, then a Highlights London cast, and then a full re-recording with Patti LuPone and Mandy Patinkin. And it's that kind of pattern. It just keeps popping back and forth. And I don't. And like you say, Phantom, when it came over... Now, it did have the two the two leads were the same. So yeah. I partially understand it. But you've got Judy Three Kay. Three leads are the same. Because you have the same role, too. That's right. You But you have Judy Kay. You have Chris Grodenthal. You have all these performers who are, are New York staples and... I think deserved besides the money that they get for recording the album, the album. I would like to hear the difference. We all deserve Judy King. Yeah, <laughs> we did. I mean, I have to say though, I, I mean, she I won think, a Tony for it for crying out loud. I think thinking of albums the way you're talking about is become more of the norm now, especially because the vast majority of them don't make money, so they they usually put them in as the part of the budget of the show. Right. Which is why everything gets recorded now. Yes. Do you remember when that was not true? I do. We used to lament things that didn't get recorded. Now yeah. The, the, the weird that are just lost to time. Two-week yeah. thing is never lost to time. Right. Which is great. Well, <laughs> it's also this, the difference of... I heard an interview with Sondheim not too long ago where he was talking about... Uh, he was bemoaning the fact that there was, weren't as many opportunities for small productions of things. Because that's how he says he learned to write shows. You produce something and then you, it fails or it succeeds and then you produce something else. And he asked, I don't remember who he asked this question of. It may have been Flaherty and Aaron's, but it was some duo. How did you get so good with only two shows? And their answer was cast albums. I, I listened to tons of cast albums and learned how to construct a show through cast albums, which he thought was good and bad. He says kind of answer was like, that's really cool. And also kind of a shame because you're creating a different kind of show, in his opinion, that way. I just want to say that Sondheim is full of it. Oh, Small shows. Oh, oh the small little well, small West, West Side, Side Story. Story. I think he was referring to... And that uh, did good, so then we did Gypsy. Well, West Side Story didn't do good originally, as he's famous for pointing out. It artistically did. Artistically did fantastic. <laughs> I think he's more talking about the shows he did, like Saturday Night and right, right, right. the His George School, school shows, Show, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, You can still do those shows, definitely. Mm -hmm. I, yes, there is certain rose-colored glasses he's looking back on. How Prince was talking about that, too. His book just got re-released. Right. He was talking about how, it, when you look at his career, because Prince of Broadway was just happening on right. Broadway, it's so nuts how fast it all happened. Yeah. I mean, fr from his involvement, from, like, discussing that he do he would do Follies to Follies opening on Broadway, is, like, a little over a year. Well, and that's the, the thing of, like, Sondheim winning three Tonys in a row for best score, not only couldn't happen today because of how phenomenal, like it's amazing he composed those scores that quickly, but just the shows wouldn't get mounted that fast. No, and you look at uh, like a Candor and Ebb and they really, they did have failures. Yeah. And learned from it and yeah. swung back hard, clearly. Yeah, yeah. And we just, you know, I, when I think of that whole aspect, I just think of like um, someone like Andrew Lippa, who I think is a really good composer, mm -hmm. but has not found the right thing to come to Broadway yet. Right. And if he'd had 10 chances, I bet he would have. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine if there was an original cast album of the original production of Carrie? Right. For example. I mean, just like that's the... Or as we've talked about on the, on this show, Starmites. I mean, there's these shows that sort of exist in abridged or odd or bootleg form, but nobody sat down and like... Which is in its way fun, because then when you're like a, the crazy nerd that has the Starmites bootleg... Yeah. As <laughs> I have no comment about... <laughs> And you feel like a special theater nerd that knows right. something that other people don't know. And actually, I have to say, the Little Shop album is that way, too. You talk about tracks that are in different order or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I was, I'm was i reminded of how, uh, I can't remember what 
section of Hamilton is not on the album, but Lin-Manuel talks about how he always loved when he was a kid that like one song that's in the show that's not on the album. So right. when you see it live, you're like, Ugh. yeah. And I do feel that way in Little Shop about Call Back in the Morning and uh, the Somewhere That's Green reprise. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I know those songs. Right. I feel like an extra fan. <laughs> I pride I myself on knowing the songs from The Wiz that aren't on the album. You it's know the I mean? uh, the reprise of um, Raise a Glass to Freedom that What's-His-Name sings after he dies. That's right, 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 right. Yeah. It's one song. I mean, it's cool. And it's also a reprise of a song you've heard before. Yeah. But the, the other reason that, that they always have to have an album of shows now and they want to represent the whole show is the licensing of it. Oh, yeah. Because there's that thing of like... Even with a show like Little Shop, Callback in the Morning gets cut all the time. Mm-hmm. Or did, I should mm-hmm. say, before the Revival album was around. Because people, people don't didn't know, know what that song was. Exactly. And um, I don't know. Like I was surprised they didn't re-record Sister Act. Because what ended up going to Broadway was substantially different from oh. the London album. Hmm. And those things are important because then they get produced. And you look at the shows from the 80s and 70s that didn't get cast albums. And they mostly kind yeah. of go into they the go ether. Away. Yeah. Or they, yeah, if they're brought back, they have to be brought back on a professional level with a huge, like, pomp circumstance or and a history documentary. And some a whole... high school theater teacher who's a right. big nerd like who's me decides to do Smile at the Oh, Paducah God, that'd be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my mini boys revival? Yes. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> it's not a great show. I had, you, you said something a little earlier that I wrote down that I wanted to make a quick note about. And that is, you called Seymour a middle-aged... I remember what the word you used was, but he's called him a middle-aged I, I don't, did I say nebbish? Yeah, yeah, but I, I had, a, this is not a question I ever had before I went back onto Playbill.com and looked at the, um, in, in, and I will have to say, I am now noticing, I went to uh, never before seen pictures and anecdotes from the creation of Little Shop of Ours by Logan Caldwell I was about to say, written did by. Not, <laughs> did not realize I was looking at your, your article. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. But I looked at the production photos on that article, which is, is something I read, I, I will say, before it came out. And uh, there's a picture in particular of Lee Wilkoff and Ellen Green singing Suddenly Seymour. And Lee Wilkoff looks 40 in this picture to me. I'm so happy that you're bringing this up because I did happen to bring the script with me today. Oh, wow. So you should know I'm a Howard Ashman super fan. And with good cause. Right. Uh, yeah. He's, he was a genius. He was. Um, and one of the things that I love about him in general is I actually think in his shows you can see how much he loves his characters. Yes. Which is a thing we can talk about, but also in his character descriptions. Oh, okay. So can I read for you Seymour's character description? I like how you snuck that in. I know, right? <laughs> Didn't even plan it. No. Uh, his, okay. Here's his, um, oh, ugh, crap. I'm What's remembering wrong? less good. But, but okay. regardless, you'll works. know why I say middle age. All right. Seymour, mid-twenties and perhaps balding a little. Our insecure, naive, put-upon florist clerk's hero. Above all, he's a sweet and well-meaning little man. He is not a silly, pratt-falling nerd, and therefore should not be played as the hero of a Jerry Lewis film. (laughs) (laughs) Which you could do. You could absolutely do that. And it's one, I mean, it's, but it's so funny that, like, when I think of Seymour, I think of Rick Moranis, and I think most people do. Yeah, and and he's perfect. He is perfect in the part, but he's boyish. Even though, mm-hmm. even when he got older, he is a boyish man. And, and, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and on forward. He's a boyish adult. And Lee Wilkoff, later to be uh, Sam Bick in Assassins, but, I mean, what, 10 years after this? Is yeah. not a young, not boyish. 
he's mannish. He's sort of a man-child is kind of the vibe I'm getting. It's yeah. only in the picture where, like, there's an earlier picture. The one with him holding the, the plant, he doesn't look super 900 years old. Let me old. see, where's the... It's, it's like the oh, You Never yeah, Know yeah. production mm-hmm. shot. Got you. Yes, and then there's one earlier um, with him and uh, Ellen Green and High Ansel, mm-hmm. where he's got a hat on or something, and he looks he looks pretty young. It's just this one suddenly Seymour where he's got like a vest and he's bald. He looks like a tailor. I mean, he looks like, he looks like a really old tailor. All I'll <laughs> say is I really like that because I I feel like um, in more modern productions of Little Shop, it's become this thing because there's this trope in the world of the like cute nerd. Mm-hmm. Which I hate. Yeah. As those of us who had nerddom <laughs> thrust upon us, it right. wasn't like a personality a choice. It right. wasn't like a tribe to be in. But um, anyways, <laughs> that's my own personal issues. <laughs> um, he now is often ca- cast with these cute young nerds, and I just don't believe he would murder people. Yeah. To get to what he needs in his life. Yeah. I totally agree. And there, but there's also this thing of I think why Ellen Green playing that part even you know 20 years later works is sort of because there's an amorphous quality to how old all these characters are. Mm-hmm. They're not young plucky like oh we just need you know all I need is one good break kind of characters to me. No. They are sad, trapped, older than you think. Character, you know, they're, For sure. and they're only young really because of their inexperience naivete and lack of intelligence like they're not they're they're childish in sort of the worst way and Mm -hmm. that's what makes the show interesting is that they're they're very i don't know how old mr mushnick is compared to seymour to me it's funny if mushnick is adopting seymour and seymour's like 40 like that's really funny to me because mushnick's like 50 or 60 like it's just yeah it's really silly and mushnick just wants the money i know (laughs) which you do lose in this cast album i want the only thing you kind of lose do you, in is that in Mushnick and Son? Does he have the little reprises about like I need the money? Like the no, kid? the intro is not on there. Yeah, and that's a, that is one trim. Like you say, when when you move dentist lower it, or earlier, it it sets up somewhere that's green nicely. I wish Mushnick and Son had that little kind of like intro because th- when you kill when Seymour kills Mushnick, you should feel very conflicted about it. Mm-hmm. Because Mushnick's not a good guy. He's not a bad guy, but he's not a good guy. No, and it's, it's such yeah. a well-plotted musical because it goes oh from God, yeah. this the dentist who's this horrible human being that you're like, eh, well, yeah, you kill you him. Get behind right. killing him. Yeah, yeah. And then Mushnick, which you understand why it happens. Well, he also doesn't kill the dentist. Morally, it's, morally ambiguous. Yeah. Right. You know what's interesting, though? Mm-hmm. So because I'm a Howard Ashman nerd, years ago, after I finished grad school, I took myself on a trip to D.C., went to the Library of Congress, as all cool people do, yes, and looked at the Howard Ashman papers, and I they had like his original outline for the show, mm-hmm. and it had him killing the dentist with his own drill. Oh, God. Which I'm very glad did not make no, it. No, that's... Wow. And I think... It does show that there was a, a trend to dark. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when you're writing a show like this that's going to have a mixed tone. It's always better to start at the darkest edge and then peel the things back instead of trying to start light and then adding dark Which where you feel it's appropriate. Which plot-wise is, is certainly what they did, but it's interesting you talk about the tone of it because clearly the tone was an issue for them. I don't yeah. know if you've heard the cut material from it, but it's no, wildly different from what they ended up with. It's a lot... Um, 
I, I, I'm going to say campier. I think Little Shop is a campy show, but it's a very specific kind of camp and where it, it creates this world that knows exactly where it is. Mm-hmm. It started with the more silly camp. Mm-hmm. Um, if you There's songs like, you should listen to a little dental music and uh, the more he beats me and things like that. There's these songs that are more a lot more comedic in tone. And there's one that I've never even heard the full recording of, but Alan Minkin always sings when he does medleys from Little Shop that was like a fun little show number for the plant to do, clearly, before they had found what the voice of the plant was going to be. Right. And it, it's very clear that in developing this show, they couldn't they couldn't find the tone, and finding that like Grease-like 60s mm-hmm. zeitgeist thing to the music came late in their process, which I've always thought was interesting. Yeah, well, it's, it is interesting, because it's such a backbone of the, mm-hmm. of the whole production. What have, you, what have you pulled to read? Oh, well, we oh, were talking about Audrey, so I, mm-hmm. I was going to read you her, too, because sure. it was interesting. The bleached blonde, Billy Dawn-like secret love of, of Seymour's life. If you took Judy Holiday, Carol Channing, Marilyn Monroe, and Goldie Hawn, removed their education and feelings of self-worth, dressed them in spiked heels and a low-cut black dress, and then shook them up in a test tube to extract what's sweetest and most vulnerable, that'd be Audrey. Oh my gosh. And the other interesting thing that I, I, that I think he has to say about Audrey is in his director's note, which is about the way he wants the show to be played. Mm. He said, you know, it satirizes science fiction and B-movies, whatever. And he says, there will therefore be a temptation to play it for camp and low comedy. This is a great and potentially fatal mistake. And then later he says, by way of example, Audrey poses like Fay Ray from time to time. But she does this because she's in genuine fear and happens to see the world as her private B-movie. Not because she's commenting to the audience on the silliness of her situation. Yeah. She's so smart. That is very smart. and it is, it, But it strikes at what a tricky piece of material... And I could say deceptively tricky because of the score being Greece-esque. Mm-hmm. It would makes you sort of trip into go, oh, it just is what it is. It's all very surface. And no, there's a lot, there's a hard balance you've got to strike with this, which and- kind of came to the fore in like 2003 or four when they had the production in Florida um, that eventually became the Broadway production, but not after, until, it's essentially, I think my research has indicated, was so different as to not really be considered the it same. It looked very much the same and it was the same plant and it was hunter foster right but, but like alice ripley is as uh was nutso like yeah. i i so i've seen clips from that show yes well that's i to say that um and <laughs> well, i there are clips on youtube i remember thinking that she was british <laughs> oh okay and i was surprised to find out that she was born in america she was <laughs> after seeing that yeah um it's funny because that production was also directed by howard's associate mm-hmm. so it's it plays to me more like a bigger version of the off-Broadway version mm-hmm. of that show. And they definitely went in a different, more commercial, I think more broadly comedic and I, direction and, and for ultimately Broadway. it seems less successful. I mean, yeah, it did not run. I, I would say. It didn't run for very long, or at least not as long as they wanted it to. It was great to see Marty Robinson doing the plant. Because mm-hmm. it's insane the amount of character he gets out of that puppet when you have someone really good in there. Yeah. And with a good, with a voice, I mean, the voice is so like, if you have a voice, like a voice that can express the nuances of, because Audrey too is also a character who I think gets sort of they're like, Oh, it's, it's a, the base and it's funny and it's pretty straightforward. But no, Audrey too has an agenda and mm-hmm. is like pretend, like spends a lot of time pretending. And it's, it's sort of like you can, if you ignore all of the motivation for what Audrey two is doing, and how 
like tricky and manipulative and almost Faustian like that oh, is, for sure. you you lose so much of the the depth. I think you could walk away very easily if you saw a production of this show that was done very surface and played more for comedy. You could walk away feeling you laugh during the show, but walk away feeling cold. Like it just there's there's an emotional depth to that darkness. Yeah, that is important, and it gets produced like that all the time, which is yeah. sad. Because when you when you see it done well, like Audrey dying is sad. You cry and laugh at the same time, right? Which is in a way why I describe it as queer camp <laughs> because it is that <laughs> that weird thing of of this. I can't divorce it from this idea of Howard Ashman in the eighties, gay man, on the like quote unquote outside of society. Mm-hmm. It, it, there, there's a it, 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 it's, just, it's something inherently queer about that of of the of the of the viewpoint of the world mm-hmm. that injected all of his material from Little Shop to writing a villain in Beauty and the Beast. Oh that yeah, is going on and on about masculinity. I mean, like, it peaks at Beauty and the Beast. I think yeah. that whole every time I watch we watch that we watch that here a bunch. My my son loves that movie, and every time I watch that, I'm just like, there's so many layers to the beast and Gaston as characters that, that are, I mean, it's amazing. And unfortunately we're kind of undercut in the, in the live action movie, which I watched recently for the oh, first time. For sure. Uh, yeah. Less said the better, but, but even little mermaid like that. Oh I, yeah. I don't know if you know, but he wrote that final scene where Triton is talking to Sebastian right before he transforms her into a human. And like, how is that not apparent? Yeah. Accepting their gay kid. Absolutely, it is. It hundred percent. I mean, that's. I, I remember the. I, I don't remember how old I was when I sort of was watching Beauty and the Beast and went, "Oh, this is this is about AIDS in a lot of ways, and this is about being gay. This is like, I, I, it was just like it hit me over the head. And this movie I've been seeing since it came out in the theater, being like, "Wow, this is well, well crafted as a piece of, of well, filmmaking. And, it's unbelievable." In Little Shop too, it bears mentioning you have this character in Audrey who has no self-confidence in herself has been told she's trash her entire life. Yeah. And then he writes a love song that is, and no one ever talks about this. Suddenly Seymour is about how Seymour respects her. Yeah. That's a pretty bold move mm-hmm. and not what many writers would choose to do in that slot. Yeah. And that's, I, you know, oh, it's, I, like you, it's what you said at the beginning of his, his love of his characters. I mean, oh his, his understanding and his his love of who even the bad guys. I mean, there is this. Oren is not a flat villain. No, he is. None of his villains are flat. None of his villains are flat. But I mean, Oren is one of the flatter characters. But he also dies very quickly, sure. so we don't get. But Oren has an origin story. When I was younger, just a bad little kid, my mama noticed funny things I did, like shooting puppies with a BB gun. I poisoned guppies when I was done. I found a pussycat crashing its head. That's when my mama said. What did she say? She said, my boy, I think someday you'll find a way to make your natural tendencies pay. You'll be a dentist. You'll be a dentist. You'll have a talent for causing things pain. Hey. Son, be a dentist. Son, be a dentist. People will pay you to be your temperament's wrong for the priesthood And teaching would suit you still less Son, be a dentist You'll be a success He has, like, a place he comes from He We understand, like, he was brought up a certain way To believe he's good at this I mean, it's the thing of, like, he is is, is a, uh, a sadist but also is good at his job. Like he's mm-hmm. he's rewarded for his behavior and that's why he's the way he is. 
And it's all in Dentist. It's all in that thing. And it's funny, but it's also pointed, which mm-hmm. makes en- enhances both the character and the comedy. It's funnier because it's pointed. It's, it's funnier because it has a good the point best, of view. To me, it's always the best kind of comedy in that it's like crazy truth, but it's based in a truth. Mm-hmm. And it's not just funny for being funny. Yeah. And so there are no... Back. It's also the good thing about, I mean, comedy. I, I tell my students, I've said this in like every rehearsal room I've ever been in, that the first rule of comedy is cut all the jokes. And this is a show that doesn't have too many jokes in it. All of the humor emerges naturally out of the situation or the character's yeah. point of view. It, it doesn't, like, there's no, like, but um pum moments in this. Yeah, I, I mean, like... I think there are jokes in it. Oh, there are but jokes, but it's... To me, the like ho- one of the hallmarks of his writing is that they're so easy. They never... F- it's right. That's what I mean by that, like, though. They never feel like, That's, that's feel... what it, When I say cut all the jokes, what I really mean is cut all the moments where the show stops so the characters can tell a joke. Cut anything that feels like it came out of a yeah. John Apatow movie or out of an Anchorman movie. Like, you, you don't want to s- slam the brakes on the movie to tell the joke. It should all be part of the same progress. It should feel like I can never pronounce his name, but the guy who just he just did Thor Ragnarok. But like those movies that are like what we do in the shadows, these sort of uh, New Zealand style, uh, English style of comedy, where everything arises out of the situation and the mm-hmm. characters, and how we mix all those things up creates naturally comedic moments and natural jokes instead of like eh. And therefore, the jokes in Little Shop. I've seen the show bajillions of times, and they still make me laugh. Mm-hmm. And they seem like they, it's like you say, they come naturally out of it. They all seem like things that the character would actually say. Yeah, so you can have a song like Mushnik and Song, which is a very funny, there are lots of jokes in, you know, like... I'll gladly treat you like my blood and my own flesh. Like Ozzy Nelson, Dave and Rick. Like Honey Vincent, take a pick. Then kiss me quick, I'll be your son. Don't make me sick, just be my son. The joke come very naturally out of him trying to convince him to be his son. And Seymour, of course, is... Uh, touched, but Mushnik is just doing this as a financial transaction. Mm-hmm. Like he's really just doing this for practical reasons. So he never wants to actually give him the emotional <laughs> feedback that he, that Seymour desires. But Seymour will take what he can get. It's sort of in that in that song, and that's where the comedy comes from. It comes mm-hmm. from that sort of conflation of of events, and also like you say, somewhere that's green that comes almost right after it is that feeling of like somewhere that's green reminds me of a song that gosh, it's come up a bunch on this show. Reminds me a lot of uh, Salt Lake City. Yeah. Of this idea, like, it's hilarious that this is her version of heaven. And it's super sad that mm-hmm. this is, like, Audrey's version of heaven is the big, enormous 12-inch it's screen and the plastic sad, on the sad, but I think, I think I want it for her. Yeah, I do, too. And, and, and that's part of the reason the ending is beautiful, too. I mean, that also is supposed to be a joke that as she's dying, she's singing about how she's going to be in this plant and Seymour is going to always be with her. And then mm. it finally gets to finally I'll be somewhere that's green. Yeah. Ha, 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 ha. But you're like, but it's that's what, what makes she it, wanted. What makes it sad to me is how attainable it is or how mm. attainable it seems to me, I should say, that it is. It's so impossible for her. And I'm just like, God, that's a small dream. But. The fact that it's so small and so unattainable makes her circumstance even like I, I my heart breaks for her even more because I'm like mm-hmm. all she wants is this little thing, and she will never have it. And you just know from the way the song goes, she's never gonna get it. Like mm-hmm. it's just there's no chance for her. Do you know I learned just a few days ago that I always thought when she says she wants a, a washer and a dryer and an ironing machine. Yeah, I assumed an I- that was an iron. 
Does she mean the big thing like you close? It's a and... huge thing. Yeah. I, I, I just discovered this the other day. It's this huge monstrosity that I'm looking at. I'm like, why would anyone use yeah. this to iron clothes? But it's like a pants presser. Therefore, that I makes mean, sense. But, right, yeah. exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> there's, I mean, I will say, the, I laugh the hardest that there's plastic on the furniture. I just think that's such a... having. It's a very New York thing. It's too. a very New York thing. It's it's it, I, to me. That's funny you say that. I, it feels very Catholic to me. I was like, <laughs> like, there's a lot of Italian Catholic houses I went to as a kid where there was plastic all over the furniture. Well, and I'm here to tell you, my Jewish husband's grandparents definitely had plastic on the okay, furniture. Okay, there we go. <laughs> well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There's a lot of similarities between Jews and Catholics, oh, culturally sure. speaking, for and sure. uh, and otherwise. But yeah, that's <laughs> and their bedtime nine fifteen. Mm-hmm. It's just a great song. It is. It, it, it's the gold standard of that type of a song. Salt Lake City. It's. Mm-hmm. It would not exist without. Oh, absolutely. Free. And neither would things like um, times like this from Lucky Stiff. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. It's. It, it is a. Yeah. It's beautiful, and we could sit here to say it's beautiful over and over again, or I could play it, and you could hear how beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'll do. December bride. He's father. He knows best. Our kids watch howdy doody as the sun sets in the west. A picture out of better homes and gardens, magazines. make albums like that anymore they they're like they're all the they're karaoke basically the band's recorded on one day and the cast is brought in kind of one at a time and it's it in its worst case to me sounds like evan hansen where everything just feels isolated everything feels very clean and separate and it doesn't feel like a show it doesn't feel like we're all in one room performing which even in latter albums there is a way to produce it that way. Like Hamilton was obviously recorded that way. Yeah, but the, the feels recent one more that I think the me. recent one I sure. think of is Piazza. I think yeah, sounds mm-hmm. like I want it to sound like yeah, that, that absolutely does. It, it there's a there's I mean Fun Home feels that way to me. It feels yeah. it feels present. It feels alive. It feels like a a show, which is because the, the it's funny that we talk about like we want the album produced like an album, but I think we both want the album produced. Like a show, it should feel like a show album. There's a certain aesthetic. Yeah, to a but show it, album. but it, it's it's yes, you mm-hmm. want it to feel like that when you're listening to it on the album, but that doesn't actually mean that it should sound like it actually sounds in the theater. No, 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 that's because not what I'm you saying. wouldn't like that either. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, yeah, yeah, it's a good that's a good distinction. It, it's the same, but it's that thing. It's that amorphous like third thing of like, I want it to sound like an album. I want it to sound distinct from the theatrical production because I'm listening to an album, but I still don't want it to sound. I want there's a certain way a, pro, a produced cast album has a vibe of immediacy and continuous performance to it. I want it to feel like it was all recorded in one day, even if it wasn't. I just I feel know. like I like things in general, be them albums or anything, a little messy. Mm-hmm. I mm. I personally like. Oh, stuff absolutely, like that. yeah. I don't like it when it's too. 
Elaine Stritch's Perfect. vocal on on the I mean it's so great. I if mean, you the listen, company album in general is like the the it's so freaking messy. The it's personification like, of that, but it's a great, it's a great album. album. But like, what's so funny to me is the way it's mic'd and Elaine Stritch being so close to the microphones when they're doing "We Love." You can hear her uh, drop out and then hear her uh, come back in later in the yeah. staggered breathe, which in the theater would have sounded perfectly and mixed. Like a full quarter tone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. Sloppiness to it. There's the, and there's a, it's all over um, the Anyone Can Whistle album because obviously that show having run for nine performances, they're not going to do take two if we don't, or take three yeah. if we don't have to. And there's a couple moments in that, including in uh, I've Got You to Lean On, where like Angela Lansbury's voice breaks basically, yeah. and they're just like, nope, we're just we have to move on. Well, and you know, do you know they re-released the Promises Promises album with auto tuning? No. And I got to tell you, I never listened to it that way. <laughs> And and they are like crazy flat often, and that's just what I'm used to, and I like it. Do you do not auto tune Jerry Orbach? You go to hell and you die. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it, it is, and ugh, okay, that makes me so mad. I'm glad. I mean, not that I, I'm not a huge Promises Promises fan. Period. But that's that's a sin. Because <laughs> who cares? I mean, it's that thing of like, what are we what are we doing here? Why are we making this album? Like, what is the purpose? Of, is the purpose of this that everybody be completely, perfectly on pitch and on tune and, like, completely set all the time? Is the purpose to make a record of the show? Or is the purpose to create a sonic experience that is relative to the show we love that feels... It's that thing of, like, this feels a little sloppy. It feels precise when it needs to be. And it's it's a tight sonic experience I can listen to from beginning to end, well, however long it is. Yeah, and just in general, like, when you think of live the- theater that you like oh god who was it, it was um patty lupone's memoir i can't remember who she's talking about but she says she's talking about someone whose performances she likes because she said it was like watching a train wreck about to happen about to happen sounds like dorothy loudon to me <laughs> might have been yeah. and that's a great example mm-hmm. and i thought that is such a good way of describing it and to bring it back to little shop of horrors Ellen Green is the personification Absolutely, of that. Absolutely, She yes. takes it right up to that line of being nutso, mm-hmm. but it's but not. It never goes there. Yeah. And it's that's a hard thing to do. Ellen Green is a silly, it's a, it, it's like kind of a silly character, a comedic character, but she's not a com, she's not a comedic person. Like he says about the Fay Ray thing. She's doing these things that we get referential as silly, but she's doing them for real. This yeah. is a real thing she's and doing. And when it's winky, it gets not fun. No. It right. takes away from that. I mean, it's like, like a, yeah. But to have the boldness, this is where you need to play it because I can't sing them all. On the recording, when she, when she, and suddenly Seymour. You the, don't the, give me a test. You don't condescend. Don't more. Use me to provide me. That should be 
super over the top. Right. And it is. Yeah. And but it's it works. Amazing. In that moment, it hits. It just absolutely hits. It's yeah. good. And it, that is a excellent conflagration of the score has earned that moment, the lyrics have earned that moment, and the actress has own, earned that moment. And we get there and you go, yes, that is perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's and then it's gone. It's yeah. just that perfect little moment and then it's gone. And but it's not because it's on the album. When I listen to like that little isolated part a lot, actually, because <laughs> I just love it. I just love it. Ah, uh, what's your favorite song? In Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, or on this album, if you want to be like, um, God, all of them. But uh, I can't, I can't <laughs> not say somewhere that's green. I just think that's a beautiful, perfect song. It's it's I, that is top, if you ask me, top ten tracks off of cast album to me. It, it is just, yeah. This recording of that song, the is recording incredible. of it, the song itself as a piece of writing is just kind of takes my breath away every time I hear it. It's just great. Mm-hmm. Um, my, it's just that I've said it a million times, but it's that weird thing where it's like funny and and sad and heartwarming at the same time that I, I don't know how you do that but i'm really glad he they did, he did it yeah. yeah it's a clear i mean it's a very clear understanding of the material it feels to me like that's the and the music sounds exactly like what she's saying it's all very natural it's mm-hmm. just a, it's a great song i can't yeah it I is a, we've said a lot about the lyrics favorite. in this in this show but like the score is really great to me in its restraint mm-hmm. it is a score that could very easily either be too simple just be three chord doo-wop, whatever, with like a you know a minor chord thrown in every now and again. Or it could also like wink in moments like somewhere that's green. You could do a winky version of that melody. And it never does. He like, Menken's understanding, or maybe it was I mean they're both they I'd say it both was of them. Definitely their, both of them, yeah. Their understanding of like this is funny because it's straight, because she means every word of it. So the music has to be completely genuine. Because then they say when you get to that third verse and it turns if the music changes with it, it doesn't work. It's the fact that the music has been the same and we're just going to hammer it a little differently here and maybe drop the tempo a tiny bit and we're, we're off in that, yeah, in that wonderful... This is apropos of nothing, but you just said tempo, which reminded me of something interesting that I was realizing recently. You know how it's like a thing that albums often have faster tempos yeah, for whatever to reason? Make them fit. All of the tempos on this album are slower than what they were in the theater. Really? Isn't that bizarre? Especially because of how short it is, that's tremendously bizarre. Yeah, but I, huh. I think I, I think that goes back to the um, album feel of it, of like how you would sit hearing it at home as opposed to in a theater. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they were all not like tons faster. No, but just but a, like just a, five to ten clicks. Wow. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, most of the time tempos are sped up on cast albums to make them fit on the. I don't think that happens as much as it used to, but it used to be. Well, to make them fit, but also like um, there's less space between you and the words coming to your ears when you're listening at home, right. Than there is in a theater. There's also less immediacy. I mean, there's like a you want to take a song, I think, up a little bit to keep the to mimic the excitement of mm-hmm. being in the room because being yeah. in the room is obviously. And if you don't have to dance along with it while you're singing, like you don't, you can take that tempo anywhere you want because you're mm-hmm. not going to run out of breath, which is the interesting thing to listening to, um, specifically "Rain on the Roof" on the on the <laughs> the soundboard recording of Follies. Oh, they're like barely <laughs> they're so there. out of breath. Yeah. <laughs> not hitting the words it's really it, i mean it's really funny it, again makes me sad because like god 
put those people in front of a microphone yeah. standing still yeah, oh man this was great logan yeah thank you so much. i'm so glad you were in town to be Me able too. to do this what do you have uh what do you, you have anything coming up at playbill we should be looking every week to? you just gotta look for my byline look look i write quizzes on wednesdays usually write fun little nerdy listicles on fridays why can't i click on your name on playbill they took that away because it, it used to just go to um our email address oh yeah, you don't want that to happen. Hate letters. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me on Twitter at UnknownPenguin. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts from the convenience of your iPhone and or check out the original cast on Stitcher if that's how you get down. My thanks to Logan Caldwell Block for coming down and talking to me today. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs>